0: This is 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, If y'all would have a seat real quick, Uh, we are going to be in 1 John, and boy, are we this morning. And so if y'all will, uh, please uh, stay there. We're going to be referencing it quite a lot. Uh, If you would, though, bow with me that God might bless his word to us this morning. God and Father, you have spoken to us. You have spoken mightily. You have spoken loudly. You have spoken by your uh, apostles and by your prophets Lord, let us be the temple that is built on that foundation this morning, Lord, that we might reach uh, uh, what James, uh, the brother of John, calls uh, maturity, completeness, and lacking in nothing. Lord, would you be building your temple up, and would you reside here? Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of this, and ask for your blessing on your word this morning, in the name of Jesus, amen. This morning, we uh, witnessed uh, a proclamation of truth. I don't know if you caught that uh, in between it. Maybe it didn't look like that much to you this morning. But these baptisms that we got to witness were a proclamation of something. And here at City Church, we believe that to be the truth of the gospel. 1 John does the same thing. Uh, If you haven't been with us yet, uh, you you don't know that we're actually starting this as a brand new book, a brand new series. We uh, rely on God to speak to us, and so we don't uh, try at City Church just to come up with some uh, new ideas and uh, impart those. We don't bounce around in Scripture as it suits us. The regular study diet at City Church is the Word of God. So we pick books that we feel like the Spirit is leading us towards, and then we just march through those chapters believing that God is going to speak to us. And it is remarkable to see how often uh, God in His providence has us in specific texts at specific times when things are happening at City Church and in the world around. We get to actually rest and rely on God's providence in doing so. So, 1 John is all about a proclamation of faith in the truth of the gospel, But how do we know the truth? How do we know the trueness of the gospel of, uh, sorry, not the gospel, but the epistle of John? How do we know that this is actually going to teach us something true about the gospel? How do we know about its trueness, the substance of its truth? We've even entitled this sermon series, 1 John, Walking in Truth. First John concerns itself with uh, three different things, and you'll hear us kind of use this as a framework as we march through this epistle. We actually see that first John, John the apostle, is very concerned with the trueness of doctrine. He's also very concerned with the trueness of deeds. He's very concerned with the trueness of devotion. So we've got doctrine, deeds, and devotion. Doctrine is our theology, what we believe. First John is going to be talking to us about the things that we believe and trying to orient us in such a way that we believe true things truly, that we're not believing lies. So it deals with doctrine in that way. It might be weird to say that he uh, concerns himself with trueness of deeds, but this is just another way of saying that he's really concerned about Christians living out in true ethical Uh, relations with one another and with the world around us. So we get a Christian ethic that is actually uh, woven beautifully in and through the epistle of 1 John. Lastly, we uh, talk about the trueness of devotion. John is devoted. He is a devoted disciple. He is a lover of Jesus, and he is truly concerned with our being devoted to Jesus. But the reason why I kind of start in this place of talking about truth is that we are surrounded by a world that speaks a lot of things to us, promotes a lot of different gospels, and we need to know and understand how some of those things are either true or false. Recently, I have heard Christianity described as having been derived from psychedelic mushrooms, I don't know if you've heard this new kind of theory. It may not be so new to some of us, but it is something that I'm starting to hear more and more that the uh, disciples of Jesus were just hanging around and they would go out early in the morning and there were these psychedelic mushrooms that were, uh, you know, around and they would eat them. And so the miracles of Jesus were not in so much a literal miracle as they were just Jesus being the greatest hang on earth. He's just loving to be around it while you're taking these psychedelic mushrooms. That's actually a theory about how we get the New Testament. That is proposed as an alternative truth to the gospel, is that all of these disciples, all of these early Christians were just tripping. They were taking Cybacillin that are in these mushrooms, uh, and you have to decide at some point, is this Cybacillin or is it the spirit? Is Jesus the greatest hang on earth while someone's high, or is he the son of man? That's actually something that you have to decide now in our culture. The other thing that I've heard described as a truth about the gospel is that the gospel is uh, the truest truth, and that sounds, hey, yeah, I believe in that, but the main proponent of this idea is actually saying that these are the best evolved narratives for living. It's not, it's not as much that the uh, writings of Scripture are actually literally true, that Jesus was literally the Son of God and that He literally came and died on a cross and literally rose from the grave. It's that those stories have evolved over the course of time and have provided the basic framework for us to have the best stories to understand the world that we live in. So it's not that they were literally true. They're better than true. They're, they're kind of the best uh, Disney episodes that we have to understand moral. That's kind of what we have started to hear kind of percolate in people and authors like Jordan Peterson. Lastly, I've heard uh, actually some other people that I really respect say, I'm not really a Christian. I don't believe in the reality of all of this, but I do rather like the benefits of Christianity. You've got a lot of historians now looking at the last uh, several millennia and saying, you know, Christianity has a lot of benefits, it teaches us to respect the, uh, the, the human alongside of me. They, uh, we need to give allegiance to a God or live as if there were a God and that we need to treat other people, treat our neighbors as ourselves and that ends up resulting in a civilization that is very prosperous. So the truth is not that Jesus really is who he says he was, but the truth is, is that the benefits of believing that are better than not believing it and so we like the tradition of our faith. All of these things are things that you will, if you have not already, come up against. You will hear things like this, and you have to decide, is that true? 1 Peter 3 tells us that we need to go beyond just deciding whether or not it's true. It says first Peter, in 1 Peter 3, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense of our faith, to give a reasoned hope for our faith. So I've got a question for you before we enter into 1 John, into this series. How would you go about making a reasoned and hopeful defense of God's true gospel? That's, that's one of the many, but I think one of the primary questions that 1 John stands ready to answer for you. Not for me, not for just us in some amorphic way, but for you this morning. How would you go about making a defense of the truth of the gospel? Where would you go? Who would you point to? What we're going to learn in turning to 1 John is that we can turn to the Apostle John for truth. Who is the Apostle John? Well, he's the son of Zebedee. He's James's brother. He was a gritty, burly, probably fisherman who was there found by Jesus on the shore, mending nets with his brother and called to become fishers of men. He was beckoned by Jesus to leave everything that he had known and to come alongside of Jesus to learn how to be a fisher of men. He was not just a fisher of men. We understand that he, was, uh, he and his brother were pretty rowdy. They were known as sons of thunder. But here's the one that I want for us to really grab onto throughout this season, for us to remember through this series, is to remember that, G, uh, that John is the apostle that Jesus loved. Jesus is the apostle that Jesus loved. It it says that in other places, but John says it about himself as well. In many ways, Jesus and John were BFFs. They were best friends forever, best friends for life. They are close. And so one of the reasons why I want to tell you to listen to the, uh, the epistle of 1 John is that Jesus and John were tight. John was there. He witnessed the transfiguration. He witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He witnessed the teaching and received the teaching of Jesus. He was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. We know this because Jesus actually addresses him from the cross and asks him to take care of Mary from the cross. John was there. In fact, we have a lot of reason to believe that John was the only disciple that was there at the actual crucifixion, there nearby, at least close enough for Jesus to talk to. We also see that he wasn't just there at the crucifixion, but that he actually saw the resurrected Jesus. In fact, we just read from Matthew chapter 28, where he was at the Great Commission, where Jesus has a word for him, actually literally commissions him as an apostle, as one who has seen the resurrected Christ, who is anointed by Christ to go, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And don't worry, I'll never leave you. That's what Jesus said to John. So it's, it's not like several steps away. It's not just reading it as words on a page. John actually received that. I wonder if there is reason for us to believe in this. We also see that, Jesus, uh, that John was there at the ascension and that he received the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire. John is trustworthy. So I've got a question for you. Are these merely words on a page or are they the authoritative, apostolic, inspired word? Do you, will you, as we march through this series, choose, you, yourself, choose to receive 1 John as the authoritative, apostolic, inspired word of God given to you, enlivened by the Holy Spirit for truth? Because if you do, The point that we get this morning is very, very simple. It is that proclaiming Jesus brings us fellowship and it brings us joy. Proclaiming Jesus brings us fellowship and it brings us joy. And what we need to know as we kind of march through this is we need to understand the manifestation, we need to understand the proclamation, and we need to understand integration. Those are the three things that we've got to understand in order to get this primary point this morning. We need to understand which manifestation there is, we need to understand whose proclamation it is, and we need to understand our integration in the midst of it. First, a little bit of context. John wrote his epistles after being forced to leave Jerusalem. He had been an early church father. He had been a minister. He had been an apostle. He had been a uh, pastor in the early church to Jews there in Jerusalem. And after 70 AD, when the temple fell, when uh, when the city was more or less sacked, he actually had to flee. He was facing persecution there in Jerusalem, but he actually was forced out of the city. And where he heads to is Asia Minor. Now, this is very convenient for us because we just got out of the book of Galatians, where Paul had gone through Asia Minor to places like uh, uh, Colossae and uh, Galatia and gone to the church at Galatia and had been in the church of uh, Ephesus. He had been there. He had established a church and then John goes to those churches and spends time there actually providing some amount of context for his writings in Revelation. Each one of those letters and sayings too wasn't just something that was delivered by an angel to John in lack of context. He actually knew These churches. John is writing to and from these churches in his epistles. This is before he ended up in exile on the island of Patmos. And so we need to know that this is happening sometime around 75 to 85 AD. Something about the writing of this book that we also need to understand is is that it's somewhat repetitive. Uh, that there are themes that are revisited on a regular basis throughout the text. It is non-linear. It's not like Romans, where it's literally trying to like prove out an equation to build an argument. It's uh, it's somewhat non-linear. It's not circular, but it visits a thing and then it comes back to a a, a primary point, and then it visits another thing and then it revisits a primary point. It's going to be something that uh, that can appear at first as being repetitive, but What I want for us to understand this book as more than anything else is as a symphony. If you go to a symphony, you're going to hear some common refrains. You're going to hear choruses in music. We actually are going to discover today in the midst of this passage that it has a familiar intro. It has some familiar language. You can actually tell who the composer of this epistle is. It is John, and he is writing it, and we get to receive it by the grace of God. So all of these things are to be understood and what we want to do and actually breaking, there are plenty of books where it's like not the easiest to take them in small chunks because it really is building a larger argument. And so if you take it in small chunks like Romans, you miss some of the forest through the trees. First John's not like that. It's meant to be taken almost paragraph by paragraph. If you're studying it alongside of us, read it almost paragraph by paragraph. And you'll understand it and see the beauty, the symphony that is there. The first point this morning is which manifestation. Verse 1, look at it with me, don't trust me. That which I'm going to stop there. You notice that word, which. W-H-I-C-H. That is going to be used over and over again. He's going to be introducing some topics by using it. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. We are getting a tactile, evocative stanza in this symphony of firsthand knowledge. What John is meaning to say is, I have touched, I have heard, I have seen Jesus. That's what we're going to understand that he is saying this morning. So when we say which manifestation, we have to ask, what is he talking about? Can John give us a trustworthy account? And the answer is yes. He's claiming a literal, sensory knowledge of what he is writing about. It's not a reasoned argument. It's something that he's seen with his own eyes. He's touched with his own hands. He's heard the teachings with his own ears. So which knowledge? Which knowledge is this? Same verse. All of these things that he has seen and heard are concerning the word of life. Which knowledge? It's that which is concerning the word of life. John begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god we see some familiarity of language there we see that we can't really argue that the uh, epistle of first john is not written also by the author of the gospel of john they're meant i think in some sense to be collaborated with taken together complemented one another So we want to understand this in light of the other things that he is saying. So John is giving us an account concerning the word, and not just any word. It's the word of, what does it say there? Life. He's giving this account, that which was from the beginning, which you have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, is concerning the word of life. Which word of life? The word of life. The word of life, verse 2, was made manifest. We have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life. The life was made manifested. We proclaim to you the eternal life. The word of life and the eternal life is the one and only everlasting, never-ending, perpetual, undying life. That's what John's writing about. So if you're wondering through the rest of this book, if you get detached from these first four verses in chapter 3, and you're wondering, man, what is John talking about? He's talking about the word of life. He's talking about this everlasting word of life. He is concerning himself with the word, the eternal, the undying life. And this is the essence of the gospel. John is claiming that he knows intimately by touch and sight and hearing. The way and the truth and the life. In fact, he says that it was made manifest to him. Now, manifest is a word that we don't use a whole lot of. It's not like you're just dropping that into conversation with your spouse. You're not using that a lot. So, what does it mean to manifest? Manifest means to either make clear or to bring together in culmination something that is obvious, that is evident, that is clear to see. So, what he is saying is is that this word of life was made manifest, and that we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim Claim the manifest to you. John is saying that this was made clear to him. Second half of verse 2 says, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The word, this word of eternal life has been, uh, has been revealed to John. And we see the harmony between John and uh, the gospel of John and 1 John by him saying that the word was with God. What we understand him to be saying is that there was a, uh, a preeminent, preexistent, permanent word. So John, uh, John is saying that Jesus didn't just come into being when he was incarnated. It wasn't like Jesus wasn't and then he was. What he's saying is, is that he was with the Father for all of eternity. Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus that we get is one who is eternal. Eternal. But not just one who's eternal, it actually says something else about Jesus. It says that this word was made manifest to us, that he wasn't just preexistent, but that he was incarnate, that he was the incarnate word, that he came to us. So it's not just that He, the word was with God and was God, it's that he was with us also. He was made manifest in our midst. John has looked upon the word, who was with the Father, and in verse 3, we actually see him name him. It's his son, Jesus Christ. Namely, the word is Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father Almighty. So which manifestation do we have to listen to? What is this manifestation that he is talking about? It is Jesus, the word of life, the word of God. But who is proclaiming it? Which manifestation? Whose proclamation? Verse three, we see that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John's not going to hide it. He's not going to put it under a bushel. He's going to let this light shine. Verse two, it says that we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. We see that he is proclaiming twice, he is testifying to it. Again and again, he is meaning to, in this book, testify to and proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, you might think or might be tempted to think, well, of course he is. This is Scripture. It's the Bible. Of course he's talking about Jesus. What we need to understand today is that what he was doing was dangerous, When he's saying, I'm proclaiming it to you, I'm proclaiming it to you, we are testifying to it, this could cost him his life. I want to remind you that in, I mean, in 75 to 85 AD, John would have been receiving reports of his brothers, his apostles being crucified upside down, being fed to lions, being martyred. John knew what he was doing. When he was proclaiming this, he knew it was dangerous, and so we cannot sit here today and just think John is proclaiming, and it's not costing him anything. It is costing him everything. It's costing the people around him everything. Who is proclaiming it? John is, of course, and he has the first account. We take that this proclamation of and the testimony to the gospel of Jesus is necessary even to the point where it would cost, might cost you, your life. Why would John be willing to do that? Because he had the firsthand account of the most important, most good news in history, and he means to proclaim it. He means to testify to it. So Christian, I want to ask you something this morning are you willing to proclaim the gospel? Are you willing to step out on a dangerous limb that might cost you everything, whether it is your credibility in the office, whether it is uh, you know, a, a relationship that you have, are you willing to proclaim it? John saw it firsthand, and he's telling you, it's worth my life to proclaim and to testify. And for what it's worth, you might not know the gospel if you hadn't have taken the chance. Are you willing to testify? Are you willing to proclaim the trueness, the trueness of the gospel? But he doesn't just say, I am testifying to it. He says, we. Why does he say we? In verse 3, it says, we proclaim it to you that you might have fellowship with us. Who is we? Who is us? Has John started to lose his mind? Maybe if he were on Twitter, these are his pronouns. I don't think so. It's not we, us. He hasn't lost his mind. That would have just been as crazy then as it is today to refer to yourself in plural. He's actually talking about someone, he's talking about a group of people. Who is it? Matthew chapter 28, we read earlier where Jesus commissions us with the Great Commission. But in verse 28, or sorry, in Matthew 28, it actually starts out by saying, "Now the eleven disciples—that's so minus Judas, he's dead—the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them." And then Jesus says, "With all authority, go making disciples." But he doesn't say that to you and I. He does through Scripture, but in that literal situation, he is saying it to the apostles, to the ones who were following Jesus, who were disciples of him in this life, and who had seen him resurrected. John receives the Great Commission with the others who had heard, who had touched, who had seen Jesus. The epistles of the apostles start almost unanimously by establishing their authority to speak to us, to proclaim, and to testify. So I want to ask you the question that I did earlier. How do you know truth? How do you know it to your bones? How can you trust something? Is it because it is merely compiled in Scripture, in the Bible? Good, good. Is it because it is revealed to you and enlivened and enlightened by the Holy Spirit? Good, but what I might want to say to you this morning that might be surprising is, how about the apostles? How can you know that something is true? Does the person have the authority to proclaim it? Do they have the authority to testify to it? How do you know that it is true? Some Christian traditions venerate. Mary, the mother of Jesus, they venerate the uh, disciples and apostles and saints. Now, that's hard for us to understand, many of us, because we come to this dark building rather than ones with stained glass on the side where you might see Paul represented or Matthew or Bartholomew or somebody else. These were men who literally, we are told in Revelation, have their names on gates of heaven. That's who they are. And so, are they right, these traditions that venerate these men these apostles, I, I would say, I think that they, uh, they do that too much. These traditions venerate them too much. They elevate them too much. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that while people with stained glass and icons and necklaces and things like that actually depicting these saints is heretical if you are putting too much trust in them, we often probably appreciate and venerate them too little that might be surprising for you to hear me say. God specifically chose to advance the gospel in this way, and I'll prove it to you. If you'll go over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says that you are fellow citizens with the saints, the members of the household of God, built on a foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Jesus. So the the imagery that we get there in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is that you have the cornerstone, the right and exacting cornerstone of Jesus and that God in his providential blessing has chosen to put other stones in the foundation named Paul and John and James and these apostles are literally part of the foundation of the temple that is being built up on it that the spirit of God is inhabiting and that's you. So I want to ask you this morning, do you venerate the apostles to Little, maybe to be more specific, are, are, do you give them their due credit and trustworthiness? Because you're going to have to in order to trust First John. Now, for some of us, we know the answer to this. It's no, I don't. I don't believe that the Bible is real, and I don't believe that the apostles have the authority that Jesus gave them to speak truth. I quite like my own truth very much. Thank you. And what I want you to know is, you're welcome you're welcome here. We love you. You don't have to even agree with us on that point to come here and to be shaped by this word. But what we want to let you know with no equivocation, with no retreating back is, is that we're going to be built on the foundation that Jesus laid as a cornerstone with the apostles and the prophets bringing a foundation that is strong, that is everlasting, that builds the temple on top of it, a temple of praise, a temple of inhabitation for the Holy Spirit, a temple of praise for our Savior, Jesus, one that gives glory, almighty glory to God the Father. That's what we're going to do here. So you're welcome to come in. But if you are a member, if you are a Christian, if you are a part of these covenant promises that Jesus Christ makes to us, you need to know that Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the temple and that he builds a strong, sturdy, everlasting foundation with the apostles and the prophets. And you and I are built up on them. If you want to know truth, if you want to know capital T truth, then be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one who laid the foundation. He's the one that consecrates the foundation. He's the one that, uh, that, that makes the foundation everlasting. But we want to be built up on that. And so we know and understand that we have a manifestation. We know and understand that there is a proclamation. But now we want to understand our integration into that. Verse 3. We're going to go like right at the end of verse 3. It says, we proclaim also to you so that. So there's a purpose here that John is writing this letter, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So we're going to see a couple of things that are actually integrating us into this kingdom, that are actually providing integrity to this foundation. And we're going to see how we are built up on it, and we're going to discover that first, first it is fellowship, and second, it is joy. Those are the two things that we get living on this foundation. We get fellowship. But you might be surprised to hear that we have fellowship first with us, with the apostles, with John. This idea of integration is a combining of parts to make a whole. The goal of the proclamation is our integration in with them. But why would we want to have fellowship Why would we want to integrate in with the apostles? Why would we want to have apostolic fellowship? It's so that we can have integrity. When I mentioned to you that we're being integrated, that there is integration, the root word of that is integrity. We started in the place of asking, what is truth? How can you know truth? Here, we know and understand that you can have integrity, that you can have truth by having fellowship, by being bound together, by being uh, uh, taught by, by being formed by the apostles and their teaching of the gospel. But if you feel uncomfortable with that, I want you to know that it's just for a moment, it's just with a whisper, and it's not without another kind of fellowship. Continue reading with me in verse 3. For indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So why would we want apostolic fellowship? Well, it's not to be best friends with John. It's not to be BFFs with John. What we know and understand that we need fellowship with the apostles and what that is all about and what it is for is so that we can have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Why would you want to have apostolic fellowship? So you can have divine fellowship. You can have divine fellowship by having apostolic fellowship. What does it look like for us to be in and have fellowship with these apostles? It's to believe what they said. Why? Because they heard it. They heard his teachings. They were there at the Sermon on the Mount. They were able to deliver that to us in the Gospels. They were able to expound by the gift of the Spirit in the epistles the things that we need for life and life everlasting. I want to have fellowship with John, don't you? I don't want to have fellowship with John just by reading his words on a page. I want to believe the things that he said because he has the authority to say them. To what end? So that I can have fellowship with the Father. So that I can be integrated in with the Father. So that I can believe the things that Jesus Christ said about himself. Apostolic fellowship gives us divine fellowship. In order to have divine fellowship, we've got to have apostolic fellowship. What do they say? are you believing it? John is proclaiming the word of eternal life, that fellowship in truth might bring fellowship with the Father. If you want eternal fellowship with the Father through faith in the manifestation of Jesus Christ, trust 1 John, treasure its testimonies, we're integrated through fellowship. But secondly, we're integrated in joy. Verse four, very briefly. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So this is a really fun thing that John does. John is saying that he's writing about that which was from the beginning, which was from the Father, which gives us eternal and everlasting life, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, which we have looked upon. That's what John is saying, that we are to hear him say. But then... Right after that, we are to have fellowship with him. We're to have fellowship with the Father. What does that result in, church? What is John saying that that results in? It results in joy. It results in joy. Now, if you read this very closely, you'll be a little surprised. Because what John is saying is not that you might have joy. It says that we might have joy. What is he talking about? He's talking about the apostles. Why would John be exiled to the island of Patmos? Why would he be willing to do that? Why would Paul be willing to risk and ultimately give his life? Why would all but one of the disciples be martyred for the faith? Because it brought them great joy. Because they knew and believed in their bones the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, that he uh, decided to leave all of his uh, preeminent, preexisting glory at the right hand of the Father, and he emptied himself to become a man and to bear our sins on the cross They were willing to go through these dire and great lengths that we might have fellowship with the Father, believing that Jesus Christ is not dead, but that he was resurrected from the grave, that he lives eternally, that he ascended to the Father, that he's preparing a place for us, and that one day at the Father's beckoning, he will be sent again to uh, completely consummate his kingdom here on earth in a new heaven, in new earth, that we might live with him everlastingly in fellowship forever. What joy! John has joy just at proclaiming and testifying to us the kind of fellowship that we can have with the Father. So I want to ask you this morning, whose joy is this talking about? It's talking about those who are persecuted and suffered and declared and gave. But it also, I think that John's reaching his hand across space and time and inviting you into that joy as well. If he's going to have joy in Jesus, he wants you to have joy in Jesus as well. What kind of joy? Read it with me. Complete joy. He is writing this letter of apostolic fellowship with saints and the Father for the purpose of your complete joy. So how should we read this? How should we study it? How should I preach it? How should we listen to it and receive it? How should we take the Apostle John's epistle? What are we to expect John is going to wield his apostolic authority to shape your doctrine, your deeds, and your devotion. He's going to spit truth at you. You're, you're going to read it. You're going to study it. You're going to uh, hear it. You're going to come on Sunday mornings. We're going to talk about it. We're going to behold it. And he's going to give you truth. It may not be truth that you like, it may not be truth that you agree with, but he's the one with the authority given by Jesus for forever kinds of truth. Are you listening? Do you want to listen? Do you want to come? Do you want to learn at the feet of John so that you can be at the feet of Jesus? I hope your answer to that is yes, because he's going to proclaim Jesus. He's going to proclaim Jesus, bringing us into fellowship and joy. And ultimately, I want to make this connection, and then we're going to pray, we're going to sing. John was Jesus' BFF but he didn't want it to remain that way. What he's actually, when he talks about this joyful fellowship, what he's asking you, what he's inviting you into is a friendship with Jesus, a best friendship with Jesus. Here's what I know. I know that some of us coming into this room do not feel near to the Father. I know that for some of us, it's been a long time since we have felt fellowship, I mean, fellowship with the Father. That's what John wants for you. That's what he says. That's what he declares that he wants for you. That's what he's saying that he wants for you. Not for the person next to you, not for your spouse, not for your kids. Yes, for them, but I'm talking to you. John's talking to you. He wants completeness of fellowship and completeness of joy for you. That's what we're after. That's what we're going to chase after. That's what we're going to run after. So for the sake of your soul, I want you. Uh, I just want to beckon you, I want to invite you to turn away from false gospels and listen to the word of life that unifies, that brings fellowship, and that brings joy everlasting. Let's pray for that. God and Father, we thank you for John. We do not deify him, He was a man, he was uh, uh, flawed, he was sinful, he was so evil and wicked, just like us, that Jesus had to give his life for him. But we are thankful for him. We're thankful for uh, the testimony that you gave to him through Jesus. We're thankful for his willingness to suffer. We're thankful that you gave him the Holy Spirit and inspired him to write a considerable portion of the New Testament that we might have fellowship with him, but only for a moment because what he's inviting us into is fellowship with Jesus. Lord, we want to see John in his epistle inviting us into the party, not to be with him, but because Jesus is there. Lord, I pray your hand of blessing on City Church. Over these next uh, weeks, over the summer that we are in John's epistles, I pray that you would make yourself near and known and felt and loved by the people of City Church, Lord, by you. Lord, we want to be a place of nearness, of fellowship with the Father through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. And Father, I want joy. I want joy. I want completeness of joy. I thank you for John and ask you that I would have joy, completed joy in Jesus like he has it. And Lord, that you would just allow for joy to spill out over onto our people. Lord, I pray in faith that that's what your plan is for us during this revival of joyful worship. Lord, we pray expectantly and we ask you to give it. Lord, we pray all of these things in the joy giver's name. That is Jesus. Amen.